We're looking this morning at chapters 2 and 3 of 2 Samuel. Some of you are here for the first time, and uh, last week we looked at chapter 1, so we'll be carrying on. Chapter 1 was about Saul dying, and Saul is dead, so chapter 2 and 3, David uh, takes the throne as king over the people of God. And he's stepping into a promise, a promise that he would be king. So as you see that transpiring in chapters 2 and 3 of 2 Samuel, I want us to just really begin by asking, how does that apply to us? Have you ever had a promise from God you had to wait for? And you had to step into somewhat? Because that's what's happening to David. He's had a promise from God. The people of God, it wasn't secret. The people of God knew he had a promise from God. And it was time in chapter 2 and 3 for him to step into that. So we're going to see that. And I want us to think about maybe some of our own. Um, look at 1 John chapter 2, 25. This is an actual possession of Christians uh, described very plainly here. This is a promise we have. And I want us to think about how it applies to us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 25 says this. This is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life. So God has given us a promise. And this promise is eternal life. I have eternal life. It is a possession of mine. It has been promised to me. It has been given to me. It's mine. If you're here as an unbeliever, you say, well, you don't look any different to me than anybody else in the room. Yeah, you might not see it, but see, it's mine. It's my possession. I have it. You won't even know. Some of you won't know that I have it until you're maybe looking across that chasm between hell and heaven described in Luke 16. You're you're looking across, and you see me in Abraham's bosom in heaven, and you're in the pits of agony. You see, then you realize, he's got it. This this thing called eternal life. We have it as a possession, but there's more to step into, isn't it? It's been promised me. I own it. But there's a lot more. And Scripture even says, I have not seen, ears not heard, all this prepared for me. All that's part of this possession known as eternal life. Now, I showed it to you here in 1 John because it's so plain there. But you also know it plainly in the most popular verse in America, and that's John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. It's a possession that if, through faith in Christ, if you believe in Christ, You won't perish, you're not going to the pit of perishing, but you're going to experience eternal life. It's a promise. And it's a promise we we embrace and rejoice in. and, 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 And think of all the things it does for us. It removes fear of death. It removes worry. It removes a lot of distress because I already possess eternal life. I'm not having to work for that, earn that, hope to someday get it. It's mine by God's promise. 
Well, I want us to... That's how it applies. David had a promise like that. He was going to get more and more, and he steps into that. Um, Let me give you one other example. Uh, Look at Malachi chapter 3. This is the promise of the tithe. Malachi 3, verse 10. says this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, here's a promise that we get to experience while on earth. And it's this promise that God says, you bring in a tithe, and a tithe is 10%. 10% of your income. doesn't matter whether you get paid yearly, monthly, bi-weekly, daily, doesn't matter. However you get paid, when an income comes in, you take 10% of it, and you give it to the Lord. And God says, if you give it to the Lord, here's a promise. If you give it to me, I promise you, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out upon you a blessing that's just going to overwhelm you. Over and over and over again. This blessing, this promise, the windows of heaven will be opened and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, I have sometimes people come to me and say, uh, I, just, I just don't think we can afford to tithe. And when I hear that statement, I think, wow, it's not been my experience at all. I cannot afford not to tithe. Because I've seen the windows open. I've experienced what it's like to step into God's promises. When I get into God's promises, I see He never lies. He always fulfills what He promises. And I've been, I've been watching this tithe thing. Patty and I have been tithing for over 40 years. And we have never, ever, ever seen that we can stop. Because... The windows are open, and the blessings come down time after time after time after time. Yeah, you gotta, you got to wait for it sometimes, but God just keeps blessing, and it just overflows. It's just unbelievable to see how God does that. Now, I, I just can't imagine someone wanting to live with the windows shut. I'm, I think it would be a great title for a book, Living with the Windows Wide Open. I love living with the windows of heaven open, just the fragrance of God's breath flowing down upon me. You think that's nothing. You ask Ezekiel when he saw God breathe on dry bones. When you just get a breath from God coming out of the windows of heaven upon your life and you see the transformation that happens because God wants to bless those who tithe. It's just... Just, it's just unbelievable that we would hear a promise and we don't, we don't want to step into it. Back in 2 Samuel, David has been hearing this promise that he is going to be king. That's a pretty big promise. And we're going to see him just step into that. Something that, you know, it's, it's beyond us to, let's say, 
step into something so big as be president of the United States. But he's stepping into this kingship, only the second king of the people of God. And this promise is given to him before Goliath. You all know the story of David and Goliath. David's a, a boy. The promise is given before Goliath. Look back at First uh, Samuel chapter 16. You'll see when it was first given. First Samuel 16, verse 1. And it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I mean, Saul had messed up. Samuel's crying. God says, Quit. Because I've rejected him and be, from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm going to send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have selected a king for myself from his sons. Skip to verse 13. And so then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So right there, see chapter 17 is Goliath. But right here in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, God is saying... Saul's been messing up. I'm rejecting him as king. I'm going to give you a new king. And the new king is David. Go and anoint him. So David is anointed to be the next king in Israel. The promise gets out. You know, I wonder how they held that back when Saul asked the question, who is this guy that just killed Goliath? Oh, he's your successor. Going to kick you off the throne. He's coming in. Well, that begins a saga, you know, of lots of battles between Saul and David. David's waiting for this promise to come through, uh, true, but it, it's, it takes a while. Um, chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, you'll see it again. The promise is clearly well known. Uh, this is the story of um, David about to wipe out Abigail's husband because he didn't treat David well and Abigail runs and tells David this first uh, Samuel 25 uh, verse 30 and when the Lord she says and when the Lord does for my Lord speaking of David according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel she says, I don't want you to be in a state of shame that you killed somebody you shouldn't have killed but here's, here's this foreigner. Abigail says, we already know you're going to be king. The promise is out. Everybody knows. God has promised you kingdom. And so he waits and he waits. And first, Second Samuel chapter 1, the first chapter we heard, Saul's dead. And he's been waiting years. He had an opportunity to kill Saul. Many times, easy. He waits. He waits. For the promise of God, God's promise now comes true. Well, let's get into it. Chapter 2 of Second Samuel, beginning at verse 1. Then David came about afterwards. It came about afterwards. So after what? After Saul's death. That David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, 
and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. So as he's been traveling in Philistine territory, he's picked up two foreign wives, kids. Verse 3, and David brought up his men who were with him and their household, and they all go. So David's burning bridges. He is stepping into this promise. He's leaving Philistine territory, and he's not just going to go check this out. He pulls up everybody. This time they do have the moving van. Let's load it all in, all the wives, all the children, all the men and their wives and their children. We're all going because God has spoken. And God wants us to go to Hebron. And when we get there, I'll be anointed king. So verse 4, Then the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, Judah is only one tribe of Israel. He's been anointed king just kind of not all the way. And we'll, we'll see some of that unfold as we go through uh, the next three or four chapters. But he's king, and civil war begins. But notice, notice something that happens here from verse 4 to 7. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. And now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. And I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong, be men of valor, for Saul your Lord is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Notice what David just did. He said, men of Jabesh-Gilead, you're the, you're the most loyal folks to King Saul. Saul died. You took his body, badly mutilated, burned. You took it tenderly, buried it. You obviously care about Saul and his household. But step in line. I really appreciate all you did. I think that was smart of you. I think it was wise of you. I think it was compassionate of you. You took care of Saul in his burial. But also, you need to know, I've been anointed your next king. I want you to know that. As loyal as you were to him, as good as he was to you, if you'll be loyal to me, I'll be good to you as well. David begins to own this responsibility of being king and trying to bring the family of Saul under his rule. Those people who are loyal. Um, he needs those people too, so he wants to bring them in. Uh, and, and now you're left. Okay, are they going to submit? And that becomes the question for the next couple of chapters. Will they submit to God's authorities? God is the one who raised David up. God is the one who's established somebody over you. Saul died, but now you have a new king. Are you going to step in line? Are you going to come up under that authority? And that's an application for all of us to think about. Sometimes God raises up an authority for you. How submissive are we to those authorities? God raises up parents for us to honor. God raises up foster parents, adoptive parents, natural parents to be over us. And our job is to be submissive to that authority. We hadn't had nothing to do with it, but it got placed over us. 
God raises up men for households. We're to come under that authority. God raises up elders in a church. We're to come under that authority. God raises up presidents. You say, well, I didn't, I didn't vote for him. He's over us. God raises up kings, presidents. We're under that authority. Are we going to be men that says, yeah, but that's not who I support? No, 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 no. That's somebody God's raised up. I need to acknowledge God's sovereign hand in putting rulers over me and learning how to be submissive, to get in line under God's plan. Well, the people of God had to face that. The people of God still have to face that today. Uh, then we get to people who said, nope, not going to go that route. There are alternatives. Verse 8, but, you see, Abner, doesn't want to get in line, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. Now, now we've got two kings. Stop and think about what just happened there. Uh, did you see Ishbosheth have a word from God? Did you see Ishbosheth get anointed by the priest? Did you hear any promised Ishbosheth, you shall be the next king? See, we've got one where we have all of those things, and we've got another where we don't have any of those things. The legitimate king is David. Ishbosheth said, Well, you know, I'm going to inherit this because I'm Saul's son. But it's not been ordained, it's not been designed. Uh, for a long time, everybody knew God had rejected Saul and his family. Even the most beloved son, Jonathan, would not be king. Certainly not Ishbosheth. But Ishbosheth, yeah, okay, you want to make me king, make me king. So Abner, the surviving captain of Saul's army, says, I'm going to make Ishbosheth king. Self appoints it, makes it happen. Um, verse 11 the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years, six months. So now we got this conflict. We got long wars, seven and a half years. Where David is king in Hebron, Ishbosheth, and other rulers over north of him, and you got you got the people of God from the north oppressing those in Hebron, saying we're not following David, we're not following um, his kingdom. When you're against the king of Christ, you need to think about it. Look at Psalm two. Here's a psalm that talks about the nations against God's kingdom. Psalm 2, verse 2, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. That's Abner. That's Ishbosheth. They take their stand and says, We're not following God. We're not following God's king. We're not supporting him. Nations have always done that. They even stood against Christ. 
You remember that? I'll give you a quick verse. Acts chapter 4 talks about how everyone was against Christ when he was raised up to be the king of kings as well. Acts 4 verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Listen to the language. God anointed. You remember where God anointed Jesus? It was at the baptism by John the Baptist. John sprinkled Jesus with water. He anointed him. And what did heaven do? It parted. Voice comes out of heaven and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Pay attention. This is the one in whom I am well pleased. Follow Jesus. And though he was anointed that way, says, people gathered together in this very city against him. Both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the Jews. All these people are against Jesus, anointed and raised up to be king. Same thing was happening with David, anointed, raised up to be king, and it looks like, except for these few people in Judah, everybody rages against him. They prefer an alternative to God's divine appointment. Now, think about how that applies to us. The spirit of Abner is not far from any of us. Abner wanted an alternative. He didn't, he didn't want God's divinely appointed king. Many times we don't either. Uh, we come up with alternatives. Uh, the list I just gave you, well, sometimes we don't want to submit. You know, there's a clear design by God of men being head of their household. There's alternatives. If you don't like that one. There's a clear design of males being elders in the church. There are alternatives if you don't like God's divine appointment. There are divine appointments to soldiers, men, soldiers, protecting women and children. But there are plenty of alternatives if you don't like that one. There's divine appointments to all sorts of people that we need to follow, even Jesus, as the only Savior of sinners, there are alternatives. But people say, I don't want to trust Jesus to save me from sin. And so many religions are thrown out there as alternatives. Think about God's divine, ordained, appointed kings and rulers and our submission to that. We see it played out in front of us that those who would follow and those who would not. Now, the rest of chapter 2 and 3 is really about Abner taking the reins and running with it. I'm seeking alternatives to Dick David and his kingship. Watch me do it. Watch me succeed. And what we see over and over and over is when you seek alternatives to God's plan, you don't succeed. You fail. And he fails over and over, um, and he's only pursuing his own, uh, you know, his own plan. Interesting stuff, the, the Civil War begins, chapter 2, verse 12. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim to, to 
to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth and the son of Saul, and Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them. So we're starting to get a battle going. What they do, I just cut to the chase. Uh, verse 14 says, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest. So they pick a contest. Let's get 12 of our best men against 12 of your best men. And so, and we'll let them fight it out, and that'll, be, that'll decide the victory. So Joab, which is David's side, and Abner, which is Ishbosheth's side, they both pick 12 men. They both line up. They both run at each other, grab each other's beard, and stab them. All 24 die. No one survived the battle. So we still don't have, a, we don't have any decision. Both opponents killed their opponents. Both sides. That's the first story we're told. Like, ha, huh, didn't see that coming. You know, expected at least one of them to make it. But nobody makes it. They all die. The next story is uh, one of the brothers of uh, Abner. Um, that day, the, verse 17, the battle was very severe. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Um, verse 18, now the three sons of Zariah were, were, were there. Jo, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Asahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. So Asahel is known he can run like a deer. He's not a John Deere. You know, he's, he's a person. And he runs. And he's fast. And he's Joab's brother. Well, see, these, the 24 men die. And when those die, everybody just starts fighting. Ab, Abner starts running. And he looks behind him. And here comes Asahel. Everybody knows Asahel will outrun Abner. Abner even knows that. So he turns back and says, Asahel, turn right or turn left. Don't keep coming after me. And Asahel, he's just, he's coming. I mean, you can see he's focused. You can see he's not going to stop until he gets Abner. Abner hollers back again. You better turn right or left right now. Don't keep coming. I'll kill you. Asahel, you know, he's coming. So Abner just turns around and kills him. Done. Now that's going to mean a lot a little bit later. That was in battle. Then Abner, that's one of the, only the, one of 20 men that David lost. Asahel focused on killing Abner, didn't succeed, loses his life. Abner has to kill somebody he didn't really want to kill. He told him twice turn away I'll kill you but he didn't he does kill him he dies the end of the story uh, verse 30 then Joab returned from following Abner when he had gathered all the people together 19 of David's servants besides Asahel were missing so David's lost 20 men in this battle verse 31 but the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men died. So now we have a victory, 20 death to 360 death. Abner thought he would just take David by contest, thought he would take, take out his swift men, 
He doesn't. Abner continues to falter and fall. Um, it's crazy to go against the promises of God. But that's what Abner's doing. He's fighting, 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 going after the, going against God's promises. Again, just stop and apply some of that. How often do we fight against the promises of God? God has promised something. We pick an alternative, and then we don't give up on that alternative very quickly. We fight for it. We even die for some of the things we're living for. We would die for them before we would accept the promises of God. Do we really step in to God's promises? Let, let me give you a, a child-rearing promise. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 112. It's a psalm about the covenant that God has with households, with families. Several promises here, but let me give you a couple. Um, verse 1, praise the Lord. Like the psalm starts, when I stop to think about the way God's blessed my family, I just have to start with praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Promise, his descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Now stop and think about that. That's pretty, that's pretty significant promise. Everybody I know that has kids wants their kids to be great kids, don't we? And here we have this promise that you can have great kids. Your descendants will be mighty, verse 2, on the earth. But they'll be blessed, they'll be wealthy, they'll be rich, they'll have righteousness, they'll have light in darkness. I mean, that's, that's pretty good fruit. What do we as parents have to do? What do we have to step into to see that kind of fruit? And the, the, the command he gives us, how blessed, we're blessed, our kids will be blessed, if we fear the Lord and greatly delight in his commandments. Now, there's a huge difference between knowing God's commands, keeping God's commands, and greatly delighting in God's commands. There are lots of people who say, oh, yeah, I keep, I keep the commands, or I know the commands, but they don't greatly delight in the commands. And that's, that's the difference. See, even a non-Christian keeps commands. You, you can't be a parent without rules. You have some rules, and you could choose the Ten Commandments to be the rules in your household. And you could have these rules uh, in your household, and you could tell, tell them to your kids and teach them to your kids, and when they step out of line, you say, well, you broke the rules. And because you broke the rules, there are consequences, and you could teach them that way, and you could get them into good schools and sports teams and dress them well, and they really might be no different than any other unbeliever. The whole parenting process and the fruit of that process. But then take somebody who greatly delights in God's commands. That person is stepping into the promises in a different way. The difference is, is, is simply this. The person who keeps the rules, keeps the rules because they have to. I said, this is, this is what we have to do for our sanity, for the peace of the home, for whatever reason. This is what we have to do. 
The person who greatly delights in God's commands keeps the commands because he gets to. See, there's this delight. I get to do this. I delight in doing this. I want to do this. This is so fun to do this. It's a completely different mindset. A completely different way of teaching and parenting and, and raising up. Take something as, 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 as simple as uh, the kid who says, I don't want to go to church this morning. I didn't sleep good. I'm tired. I don't feel like it. Please don't make, Why do we have to go? How many kids have said that? I said it all growing up. And you have a parent that says, we have to go. Oh, I don't want to go. That's one way of raising kids. The other way, Psalm 112, God's covenant is with those who greatly delight. Your kid wakes up and says, I don't want to go to church. I hate going to church. There's no fun at church. I'm tired. I didn't sleep well. I'm sick. All the excuses. Why do we have to go to church? And mom and dad says, well, we don't have to. We get to. This is the Lord's day. This is the one who created us. This is the one who redeems us. This is the one who loves us. This is the one who opens the windows of heaven and greatly blesses us. We get an opportunity to go and be before him and praise him and adore him and give to him. And the kid says, what? Wow. I'm in. Because you've You've expressed an event of such magnitude and such significance. I could never feel too bad not to want to be a part of that. And God says, when you have that... See, remember David, 2 Samuel, man after my own heart. When you have that heart for me, God says, I want to bless that. That's... That's reaching the heart of a child. That's living with a heart before God. And that's the kind of heart God wants to bless. Step into that. There's alternatives. But those alternatives never end well. They ended death and tragedy. And that's the route Abner was going and it just wasn't working. Well, chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. He, he steps away because... He thinks it's going to be better for him. He steps away because it looks good. He's going to, he's going to be better. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a long war. I've already told you. It's, it's, it's a long time here. A long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger. But the house of Saul grew weaker continually. So you see the contrast. You can go Abner's route, Saul's route... It's just weaker, 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 weaker. And they keep fighting to do it their way. David patiently waits, king in Hebron, and he just grows stronger and stronger and stronger. God keeps blessing and blessing. Well, one of the ways... You, oh, goodness, I didn't realize I leave. Sorry, I'm sorry. One of the, I'll skip to it. What, one of the ways... Um, in those days, that, that you showed your power and authority is when you, you took over a king, you took over his harem, you took over his wives, you took his possessions. Well, 
Abner, down in verse 6 of chapter 3, he, he takes one of Saul's concubines. Well, Ishbosheth said, wait, 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 what just happened here? That was my daddy's wife. And Abner blows up and said, what? This is what we do when you, when you take over kingship. And Ishbosheth said, I don't like Abner said, well, if you don't like it, okay, I'm, I'm taking my ball, and I'm going over to David's side. And he calls up David on the phone. Hey, David, I know I'm the captain of Ishbosheth's army, but we had this thing. We, we disagreed. Can I come over to your side, and I'll bring all my men with me? And David basically says, yeah, you can do that. He says, I got a few, few conditions. Number one, you, you need to bring me my first wife, McCall, Saul's daughter. I think that's more political than romantic. Doesn't show us ever that he's romantically inclined to her again. But see, if I can get the whole family of Saul, if I can get her, his daughter over on my side, that's a big political move of uniting households. So he asked for that. And he asked directly with Ishbosheth. He bypasses Abner for that one. Again, I think it's strong, making Abner the middleman instead of allowing Abner to get too much authority. So that's, that's what's going on. A power play happens. Uh, David continues to get stronger. Abner gets worse and worse and worse. But Abner, what is he doing? He said, I'm going to switch sides because it's to my advantage. I get something. And a lot of times we will look like we're coming into the church. We look like we're coming under the authority of God, but really we're just doing it because we get something. Well, we all know people who've gone to church to get a date. We've all known people who go to church because there's good business contacts. We all know people who go to church because they want votes. I mean, there's times we'll go to church because we're going to get something out of it. Well, that's what Abner was doing. He's going now to church. He's going to the other side. He's going under David, but he's doing it because he wants to get something. It's not real heartfelt submission to God's side at all. Caution against following Abner as an example. It just doesn't end well. Well, the, it goes on down, chapter 3. Uh, Joab finally... Verse 26, 27, murders Abner. He catches up with him. He says, you remember Asael? That was my brother. I know it was a public battle, but this is a private vendetta. I've been after you ever since. And he kills him. So Abner's gone. Ishbosheth has lost his captain. David keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Is it wise to pick alternatives and... and and live a life contrary to the one God has ordained and anointed? That's one of the big applications here. You just see the failure of those who seek to do life out from under the promises of God, contrary to God, over and over and over. It's like, how many times does your head have to hit the wall before you realize, I don't succeed if I don't do it God's way? I don't get blessed if I don't do it God's way. I've got to come under Christ and his lordship and his kingship. Christ was anointed king. 
I, sh- I shared with you uh, Psalm 2, the first few verses. The application goes, goes to Christ. It says, people rage against kings in their lives, not realizing God sets them up and puts them in charge. And then uh, he goes to Christ with that and says, um, uh, Psalm 2, verse 10, Now therefore, O king, show some discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and worship with trembling. Do homage to the Son. That's Christ. Um, uh, verse 8 of Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. This is God's promise to Christ. Christ, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to anoint you. Ask of me, I'll give you the nations. And we see God kept that promise. Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose again from the dead, went to heaven, ascended, comes back and meets the disciples on Mount in Galilee on a mountain. He said, I'm going to meet you there before I, I go for the last time here. So they meet him. And when he shows up, this is Matthew 28, 17, they worship. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth was, all authority in heaven and upon earth has been given to me. I ask for the nations. And God has given me the nations. So go into every nation, to every ethnic group, and bring people under my authority. Bring them online. Make disciples. And teach them all of my commands. Because I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. David pointed to that. Psalm 2 points to that. We need to to see how to come under the authority that God's given us. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy we get to experience straight from your word that there is a king who is over all. There's a sovereign who's been anointed. There is one redeemer And it's Christ our Lord. Lord, help us to to see the many ways we seek to thwart your anointing, your plan, and do life the way we think best. Help us to see how that just comes to an utter ruin. Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of following our own thoughts and ways. Let us be submissive to Christ. Christ's divine order and design. Let us submit to him that we might have your blessing and your grace forevermore. Father, for those that are in this room that don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, we're not mad at them. We're not trying to manipulate them. We're sad that they're missing blessings. Our heart breaks that they miss seeing you. Lord, let open their eyes, change their hearts, that they might see the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They may come and find that sweet surrender to be so wonderful and such a delight. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.